Hi, and welcome to FolkPod. I'm your host, Cheryl Prashker. And here on FolkPod, we're going to talk to my friends, some of the most entertaining musicians and songwriters I know. So get ready for stories about art, inspiration, and the lives they've led through music. Personally, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for some incredible music. And if anyone can help us define that tricky little four-letter word, folk, our guests are sure going to try. This week's guest is Zoe Mulford, a multi-instrumentalist singer-songwriter, originally from Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Philadelphia. She now finds herself living in Manchester, UK. Zoe is well known among the folk community for her incredible songs, which now includes a song covered by Joan Baez, entitled The President Sang Amazing Grace. Welcome, Zoe. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. It's a joy. Well, I'm excited just to get to chat with you because we do chat from time to time via phone and now everybody's going to be kind of privy to our conversations. How are things in Manchester, UK, by the way? Manchester is in a red zone right now. We are spiking. We're not in full lockdown at the moment, but we have been told not to gather in groups of more than six people, even outside. Businesses are still open. Workplaces are still open. Kids are going back to school, but the numbers are kind of alarming and we are laying pretty low. I am fortunate that my husband and I can both do pretty much everything we do from home and we have this beautiful park next door, so we get outside every day. I'm glad to hear that you're able to get outside, yeah. Well, I'm going to start this conversation by going right back to your musical beginning, if I may. What was your first instrument? So my first instrument was the piano. I started playing as soon as I could reach the keys. (laughs) And I was determined to sort of keep on pressing buttons until I found things that sounded nice. (laughs) And my mother, who was a classically trained musician with a degree in music education that I don't think she ever used professionally, but she was somebody who knew a lot about music and made music regularly. It drove her nuts because I didn't know the rules and I was trying to sort of deduce them. And what I thought sounded right wasn't always necessarily what she thought sounded right. (laughs) This is pretty much the only thing we ever fought about was music. I love that. And it was because we both loved it so much. Did you take piano lessons from her or from other people? I took piano lessons for about six years. And my teacher was very smart. She recognized that I learned more quickly by ear than I did from reading music. And she recognized that I just was not going to practice anything I didn't like. (laughs) She would take me shopping. We would go through the book and she would play me all the little pieces. And I would say, I like that one. So we would learn that one. And how old were you at that point? So this would have been kind of through grade school. And she also recognized that I needed about 10 minutes at the end of the lesson to play her whatever I was working on. Oh, you mean original Zoe Mulford material? Yeah, I was always writing things. I wrote my first song when I was about six. On the piano? Probably just singing. Because singing was also something that happened in our household. Everybody sang. My parents used to have friends who came over and sang madrigals for fun. For fun. And anytime we went anywhere in the car after dark, we would sing in the car. And my mother sang folk songs to me when I was little. So even though we had this classical framework, I was getting the folk music. And the household record collection included Pete Seeger and the Freedom Singers. My mother was very fond of Malvina Reynolds. 
you got a really early folk education that most of the rest of us probably didn't get. So that's actually really fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. The other person I have to talk about was my elementary music teacher, Betty Jo Wagner. We had this wonderful program. She had every kid in the school once a week from the first through the sixth grade. I remember having her in middle school too. So there was just this tremendous continuity. And she was an amazing teacher. She believed that everybody should have access to music. She wasn't just teaching the stars. She was teaching everybody, and she was finding different ways for different kids to connect. That's huge. And she believed that kids could write music, so we did. That's beautiful. That's incredible. I mean, so many of us have the stories of the teacher that supported us, but it always amazes me when you talk to musicians as they get on in their careers, how important that was. And obviously, it sounded like that was very important to you as well. It was very important. The other part of the story is you get to high school, and by the end of high school, I was advised, well, you don't read music very well, and you don't play any instrument to conservatory standards. Your voice is nothing special. You're not a star vocalist. So you can't do this. Are you kidding me? You should not be pursuing further musical education. You're smart. Go do something else. So that is what I did. I went on making music for my own enjoyment because that was important to me. And what did you go on to study? I studied Chinese. As you do. <laughs> As you do. What made you do that? And were you going to be an interpreter or maybe move there? I had the example of both of my parents that whatever I studied as an undergraduate didn't necessarily have anything to do with what I would do as a career. <laughs> no kidding. Between high school and college, I spent a year as an exchange student in Belgium speaking French. I had this notion that I was interested in languages and good at them. And I kind of looked at the education I had already received and thought, well, I don't know anything about China. <laughs> it's a hole. It's a hole in my education. <laughs> I had so much fun. I, I really, really enjoyed it. But the language kind of did me in. I enjoyed it, but I fell behind very rapidly. I could not keep up. I did manage to graduate. But by that point, I was thinking, well, this is something else that I can't really do unless I pack up and move to China and actually get the language under my belt. And were you still playing music? Were you playing it out at all? Maybe going to open mics? Not at all. I was not performing music at all. That is amazing. I was only playing for my own enjoyment. I mean, for those of you who do not know Zoe Mulford, I cannot say enough about how beautiful your voice is. So I don't know who that person was who told you you can't sing. I wasn't told I, could, I couldn't sing, just that I was nothing special. I see. We love people like that, don't we? <laughs> so when did you decide to make that switch to become a folk singer? <laughs> Lucrative. So here's what happened. Part of the reason I didn't want to go to China was there was this guy who I had known since high school. We had been long distance all through college, and we were done with that. I thought, I really need to be where he is, and he was going to graduate school in North Carolina. So we packed up, we moved to Chapel Hill, and later on we moved to Durham. And for the first time in my life, I did not have a piano. Oh. So I got a guitar, and I was working in a natural foods grocery store. There was a guitar shop across the street. So I went across the street on my lunch break and I said, do you have somebody here who teaches? And they said, talk to Tim. This was Tim Warman, who was an old time flat picker. 
I didn't know a thing about old time music. I'd been listening to everything Gene Shea put on the air when I was in high school in Philadelphia. So that was part of the palette, but I didn't know anything specifically about old time fiddle tunes. Hmm. So Tim started teaching me tunes by ear with a tape recorder. And then he would teach me the chords and he would play the melody and I would play the chords and then we would switch. And as soon as I was vaguely competent, he sent me out to the picking circles. Wow. In North Carolina. I've been to some of those. In North Carolina. So I sat with all these amazing musicians who learned everything by ear. And I sat on the edge of the circle and I played my three chords. That's an incredible education. Zoe, I had no idea. It was. It was amazing. That's where I fell in love with the Clawhammer banjo. For those who don't know, Zoe is just as amazing on the banjo as she is on guitar. And then from there, I crossed over to the songwriters because there were also these circles of people who would meet to sing everything out of Rise Up Singing. And some of them were songwriters. And I got invited to a, a sort of private circle of songwriters. And that was really where I started to think, okay, there's a community of people who make music the way I do. And I'm welcome there. And I can do this. So I started playing out at open mics in North Carolina. It took a long time for me to really feel like this was a thing that I could do. Your songs, they paint pictures. Do you write the lyrics first? Do you write the music first? I started out as a lyrics first kind of person. Before I started writing the kind of songs that I would perform myself, I was also writing poetry. So there's that in my background. I was always quicker with the lyrics. So the CD Roadside Saints. Where were you when you were writing all those songs? Because to me, every single one of those songs is a hit. A lot of those songs were written while I was living in North Carolina. That's the North Carolina period. I don't even remember if we met at NERFA. We must have met at NERFA and talked about your music and recording because you kindly asked me to accompany you on Roadside Saints. We get the famous Cheryl Prashker percussion part and the triangle. <laughs> At the time, I was kind of excited about trying to sneak in a triangle in as many recordings as I possibly could. And I just loved putting percussion down on your songs because your songs are such incredible stories. And as I said, they paint pictures in your mind. I mean, when you listen to your songs, you can kind of play your own video in your head while listening to them. And of course, my favorite song is, is Elegy. And can you tell the listeners a little bit about what it's about and how it came about? That particular song is, is actually from after we left North Carolina. I remember writing that song in Maryland. It's about a set of crystal glasses that are passed down through three generations of one family. You have the grandmother and the mother and the daughter, and each one of them has a different relationship to these glasses. I wrote the first two verses, the grandmother who says, you have to keep them safe, only use them for very best. And the mother who says, they're no use if they never get used. They should be used every day. This crystal glass was given to my grandma on her wedding day. It was one of twelve that were only used for guests. And it loves candlelight. It loves the morning sun, but it spent its days in darkness in a big oak chest. Waiting for white linen and the silver and the wine. On a table set for angels it would shine. And she said, glasses may break 
If you use them every day, you must keep them safe. They're like hearts that weigh. Mostly you can get along with less. Wait for special times to use the best. Crystal glass was given to my mother as a legacy. It was one of ten from my grandmother's estate, and it loves candlelight. It loves the morning sun, but it spent years marked fragile in a packing crate till my mother rediscovered it in 1989. She held it to the light to see it shine, and she said, "Glasses may break if you use them every day. You can keep them safe, but what good are they if they just stay shut up in some chest? Why wait to use the very best?" Toast to lovely things. Hear the crystal speak as it clicks against my rings, and see the facets shine. Makes water taste like wine. Clink the glasses and they sing. So I had those two verses, and I played the song for my guy. And he said, "You have to break one. You have to break one in the song." It was Beach that did that. Yes. Wow! And when I first played it for him, it was an entirely different song. It was in a, a major key. It was in waltz time. <laughs> it was insipid, and it wasn't until I started playing around with really some cross pollination from the banjo and getting that motor, that drive. I mean, it's incredible. Song took off. I play the different versions of that song back to back and explain the process of writing it. Sometimes I've done it for students. I'll take them through the whole process of writing that song and explain this is why I did this and this is why I did that and this is how this used to go and this is why I didn't like it. I think particularly for young creative people,、uh, certainly for me, I. Grew up exposed to all this amazing culture, amazing music, and amazing art, and amazing theater, and I loved it so much. And I couldn't do that when I was growing up. When I was learning my craft, I would get discouraged because I couldn't write on that level. I could hear these things that I could not achieve. I beg to disagree. As a young person, right? Okay. I see you. And nobody explained to me those artists make pencil sketches. It doesn't start out that way. There's a process. You can rewrite. Yeah, true. If you write it and it's not quite right, you can change it. It took me years to figure that out. Wow, Zoe, is there a song that you know you've written that surprised you when people came up to you and and told you how much it meant to them? I don't know about being surprised. I'm honored 
it means a lot to me, particularly now when it's good. I kind of know it's good. I mean, not always. I mean, you can attest to this. Sure. I know when I'm writing, I know the things that move me. And anytime what I'm trying to express can jump the gap and move somebody else, it's a miracle. Huh. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. And that's why I do this. It's that amazing moment where the song stops being mine and becomes somebody else's. That happens in the song about the glasses because there's a lot of sensory imagery in there. Mm -hmm. And so everyone who hears it has a set of glasses or a set of china or you know something they remember from their own life. They bring that into the song. And I think that's why it has resonated so well with other people, and a lot of your songs do. And one in particular, let's talk about the president saying Amazing Grace and how that came about. I want to tell my little story about it because I have a very special story, and I'm, I'm excited about it. <laughs> okay. You and I were recording music in Philadelphia together. As I said, I've been very privileged to have been in many of your albums, and we were doing some percussion for the, I think it was your last album. We had done our percussion part, and we'd gone over to the diner in Philly to have a bite to eat. It might have even been raining, but we were outside on our way to our cars, and you said to me, I have this new song, and I want to put it on the album, but I fear that it is going to be too political. Could I sing it for you? And I said, I would love for you to sing it. You mean right here? And you said, yeah, it's a cappella. And you sang, the president sang Amazing Grace, and I just about lost it. I didn't know whether to cry or scream. All I remember is saying, you have to put it on the album. Whatever you do, you have to get it out. In fact, you can't even wait for the album. You must put it out now somehow. And so I don't know how many other people you played it for or sang it for. So take us along the process of writing the song, how it came about. I'm just glad that you put it on the album. Oh, the song is the story of the 2015 racist attack on the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston and about President Obama singing at the memorial for the Reverend Clementa Pinckney. Like everything that happened that year, I had been sort of carrying it around with me. And then we had 2016 election. And three days later was NERFA. So I'm driving up 95 on my way to, to spend the weekend in a hotel with 800 folk singers. All of us are processing how we feel about the election. And I, I'm thinking, I have to write something. I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm going to write something this weekend. And for those who don't know, NERFA is the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, and it is a conference that takes place in November in Connecticut. It's where musicians of all types, singer-songwriters, Celtic, folk, you name it, we get together in a hotel, and people who book the music come and listen to us. You know, we have workshops, and it's an actual conference, and we get to spend time together and learn from each other and hopefully get some gigs out of it. But it is a community event more than anything. And so, yes, this particular one happened three days after the election. So I'm driving north on 95 and listening to one of my favorite British folk DJs, Mike Harding, on his podcast. And his theme for the week was Heroes and Villains in History. So I'm listening to all these English history songs. And I started thinking, if I were going to write a history song, what would it sound like? Who are my heroes? And I got to the hotel. I'm going through the revolving door, and I find the line, the president sang Amazing Grace. Hmm. 
So all that weekend in and around running around at the conference, anytime I had two <laughs> minutes to myself, I would try to find another line. By Sunday morning, I had the whole thing. I had sung it very shakily Saturday night to my roommate just to make sure I could get through it. I sang it at the closing song circle at the conference. What was the reaction? 20 folk singers, ably led by Mike Agronoff, got up spontaneously and sang Amazing Grace with me. And a couple of folk DJs walked up to me and said, when can I have that song? Oh, man. I love that story. Just everything about it. Just the fact that you wrote it there right after the election. I actually delayed releasing the album for an extra month so I could get it on there. The album was supposed to go to mastering the week I wrote that song. Good thing you waited. Yeah. Can you fast forward and tell us the story about the call you got from Joan Baez's team? It was just an email. The album had been out for several months, and I got this email with the subject line, Joan Baez. And I thought, oh, this is probably <laughs> spam. And it was an email from her manager saying, Joan wants to record your song. What's your publishing information? And you had found out that she'd actually been singing it for a little while without you even knowing it. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us the story about how she came to hear it, because it's a great story. She happened to be driving around in Berkeley, California, and she turned on her local Pacifica station, and they played my song, and she heard it. It was total fluke. When you go into the singer-songwritering <laughs> business, they sit you down and describe a scenario like this, and they say, this never, ever happens. It must have been a little surreal. It was incredibly surreal. So then she recorded it. She put it out on her album, which was nominated for a Grammy, though it did not win. It's okay, Grammy-nominated songs. Actually, her album that your song is on is an album of music from people that are unknown, I think. Am I right? There are several tracks from lesser-known artists. One of the amazing things that she did while she was promoting that album, those were the tracks that she talked about. And it's her last album. That's quite an honor, Zoe Mulford. It was pretty cool. Her version is definitely amazing, but I think I'm not alone when I say that I kind of like your version better. Would you care to play that one for us? And I know you've been doing it a cappella, but I know I've heard it differently as well, because at NERFA, you, you did premiere it two years ago on the piano. There's a whole other story about the piano. There's a piano part on the album. When I put it on the album, I, I thought it should have some kind of accompaniment. At the time, I was not using the piano as an instrument that I performed on, but I used it sometimes in the studio. Right. <laughs> I really didn't have a lot of time, and my engineer didn't have a lot of time. So I called him up, and I, I said, Brian, can I possibly come over and record this song? And he said, well, I've got a dentist's appointment on Tuesday, but I could probably fit you in. So he set me up in the studio with a MIDI keyboard. He pressed record, and he went to the dentist. Are you kidding me? And I sat there for an hour just playing each phrase over and over until I got something I liked. And then Brian, bless him, edited the whole thing together. And that's what's on my album. That's an incredible story. And when I hear it now, I can hear myself hunting for the notes. <laughs> I, I can't listen to that recording. Wow. Inside scoop about the recording process from Zoe Mulford. Well, I'm going to have you play the song, if you might. You can do it a cappella or piano. Okay. I've got the piano right in front of me, so here we go. A young man came to a house of prayer They did not ask what brought him there 
He was not friend, he was not kin But they opened the door and let him in And for an hour the stranger stayed He sat with them and he seemed to pray But then the young man drew a gun and killed nine people, old and young In Charleston in the month of June The mourners gathered in a room The president came to speak some words And the cameras rolled and the nation heard But no words could say what must be said for all the living and the dead So on that day and in that place The president sang amazing grace The president sang amazing grace We argued where to lay the blame on one man's hate or our nation's shame Some sickness of the mind or soul And how the wounds might be made whole But no words could say what must be said For all the living and the dead So on that day and in that place the president sang amazing grace My president sang amazing grace Amazing grace How sweet the sound that Zoe, thank you for playing that song. I love hearing it on piano. I love hearing it any way that you sing it. And I hope our audience enjoyed that version. Whose idea was it to take that song and create a children's book, of all things? There's one more piece of the puzzle that I have to mention first. When Joan Baez put out her album, her team wanted video for every one of the tracks. And they contacted Rick Litvin, who teaches filmmaking at the Tisch School of Art and happens to be married to Lucy right. Klansky. And he produced a bunch of videos for them. The first one they put out was The President Sang Amazing Grace. And the video is this beautiful piece of hand animation by an animator named Jeff Schur, who also teaches at Tisch. So the video came out 
and got a lot of attention. It was featured on the website of The Atlantic. And a children's book publisher in California saw the video and contacted Rick and Jeff and said, we think this should be a children's book. And we all kind of said, what? And I kind of thought about it. And I said yes. And everybody who needed to say yes said yes. And so there was this team at the publisher that went through the video and decided which images they wanted to use and how to pair them to the text, how to pace it. They put some extra material at the back with more information about the things that happen in the song. There's a brief biography of each one of those nine people who was killed in the church. It's absolutely a stunning piece of work. And I urge people to look for the video and look for the book wherever you buy books. It's just been this amazing ride. And has it continued through the last sort of five, six months of what's been going on in the world? And how has that affected what you have been doing? There were some events that were supposed to happen this past summer where I would have had a chance to share the book with large groups of people, one of which would have been the Falcon Ridge Folk Festival. Right. And so those things didn't happen. Can you um, talk about what it was like to meet Joan Baez and watch her do your song? And then also, if I'm not mistaken, you did go down to South Carolina for a memorial service and attended that with her. So when she started touring the album, her first dates were in Europe. And she had a date in Manchester. I had it on my calendar. I had my tickets. I was ready to go. And I forget who said, why are you waiting to see her when she comes to Manchester? You could go to another place and see her right now. So <laughs> Beach and I got on a train to Edinburgh in February, maybe. We got snowed on in Edinburgh. We got in touch with her road crew. We got our comps. We got our backstage passes. We were the only people who had backstage passes that night. That's great. I love that. We got to sit with her in the green room, just one-on-one. -on -one. The first thing that happened when I came in the door was she gave me this great big hug. Well, there you go. Full circle. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. And then in June, there were all these things going on in Charleston to commemorate the third anniversary of the attack on Emanuel AME. They had a rally for an organization against gun violence, had this rally in addition to all sorts of other memorials that were going on at the church and through the community. What I did not really realize about that attack was that those people were not just the heart of the church, and not just the heart of the Black community in Charleston. They were the heart of Charleston. They were important people in Charleston. In addition to Clementa Pinckney, who was a Charleston state senator, I looked down the list of names. There are, I think, four other reverends on that list. Cynthia Graham Hurd, who ran the Charleston Public Library. These were community leaders. So there was all this stuff going on in Charleston to recognize them. Joan Baez was invited to sing my song at this rally. And she emailed me and said, I'm going to do this. Will you be there? And I said, yes, and bought a ticket to Charleston. <laughs> of course you did. I got to visit the church with Joan Baez and the mayor of Charleston and a film crew that was shooting a documentary about Joan. As we walked up the steps to the front doors of the church, Joan Baez took hold of my hand and hung on to my hand as we walked through that door. I can't imagine what was going through your mind and your heart. 
I'm still looking for how to talk about it and what to say about it. I still haven't figured out how to tell that story. Part of the reason it's hard to tell that story is it really is in no way about me. I went to Charleston to bear witness, to be present and to listen to the stories of the people whose lives changed so drastically that day. That's really the bare minimum of what I owe to them. And I always try to remember that when I'm presenting that song. Well, I know you've done work in many Unitarian churches yourself. You sing at various churches throughout the United States. How did that come about? That started in North Carolina. When I was little, I tried to be a person who went to church because it seemed like (laughs) a good thing to do. My parents were not people who went to church. Eventually, I gave it up. Church was never a comfortable place for me. I I always felt like a guest. So we get to North Carolina, and I'm hanging out with the folk musicians. Particularly in North Carolina, you cannot throw a spitball in a gathering of folk musicians without hitting a Unitarian Universalist. And it's pretty much the other way around, too. You can't throw a spitball in a UU church without hitting a musician. There was a a UU coffee house, which was one of the first places that I sang my own songs. I have a song called Storm Damage about a cherry tree. That was one of the North Carolina songs. And the associate minister was at the coffee house and heard that song and said, hey, that song, it touches on the theme of my service that I'm giving coming up. Would you come and sing it at the service? And it seemed to be the coolest blow that any storm could bring. still grows and you know the roots run deep the tree still blooms when the gentle rains wake it out of its barren sleep and the branches reach to hold the sun and the cherries still are sweet so i did that it was my first experience performing my music outside of an entertainment context. Right. What were the reactions? They were very strong. I mean, it's a very introspective song about healing from trauma. The way people listen to it in church is different from the way they would listen to it if I did it in a coffee house. They're much more open and they're much more in touch with whatever's going on inside them. I looked around and there were people crying. There were people with their arms wrapped around themselves. Again, this was a moment where the song stopped being mine and it belonged to all the people who heard it. I was just blown away. I thought this is really powerful stuff. Isn't it amazing? As I got to know the UUs better and realized you could be an atheist and still go to a UU church. They welcome everybody. It was another feeling of, okay, these are my people. It's always amazing when, as a musician, you can surprisingly find another place or another way to create music and give to the community. And it doesn't have to be becoming a rock star and making a lot of money. As we have talked about how we're going to define the word folk, I think that's a big part of it. We're just so lucky to come across moments like that. We didn't plan them. They just kind of find us. And so we're very blessed, aren't we? Wow, I love these stories, Zoe. (laughs) I think of folk music as the music that people make within their community for the purposes of the community out of whatever is readily available. 
That brings me to another thought about you. Uh, as we are talking about all these introspective and heavy pieces of work that you've put out there, there's also a funny side. And there are a few funny songs that the community has come to love that have your penmanship on it. I think one of them comes to mind as we sit here on a Saturday morning, and that's Life's Too Short to Fold Underwear. That is one of my most requested songs. Go figure. Seriously? Yep. Life is too short to fold underwear. Life is too short to play solitaire. Get off your duff, it's time to begin. There's good deeds to do and there's sins to be sinned. And there's not enough time to fit it all in. Life is too short to fold underwear. That's one of the hits. Well, it's sing-alongable, right? And that's what folk music is. <laughs> yes. And everybody can relate and people write their own verses yeah. <laughs> and I keep on writing new verses. Do people send you their verses? Yes. Oh, I love it. Well, this is a song that tends to grow more verses. Other people have written verses and sent them to me. And I, and I get into more discussions about this song. You know, people come up and they say, I'm never folding my underwear again. And... Or they say, what's wrong with folding underwear? I, I like folding underwear. I, I like having my underwear folded. And I, I tell them, if that's the way you feel, then you should fold your underwear. It's just life is too short to fold other people's underwear because you think you ought to. Well, life is too short to eat processed cheese or mealy tomatoes or third-rate Chinese or to live someplace dismal without any trees and life is too short to fold underwear yes life is too short to fold underwear <laughs> and folks I don't know what to talk about after something like life is too short to fold underwear are there any projects on the horizon? Is there something you're working on? And have you been writing during this six months of pandemic downtime? I have been writing. The downtime has given me several gifts. One of them is that in the last couple of years, particularly in the wake of the president saying Amazing Grace and the book, I went on a sort of a book tour. Just the fall of last year. Right. Feels a million years ago. I've been running around pretty busy because I live in England and a lot of my audience and my contacts are still in the US and I want to go to the US because my family's there. Touring can be quite strenuous and go on for a long time. And my back was pretty badly messed up. So being off the road has given me a chance to heal, which I desperately needed. And it's also given me a chance to think about writing because the writing got put on hold when I was running around going places and being busy. So those are both real gifts. Definitely a plus. And I think a lot of musicians have been feeling the same way. The nonstop treadmill that we're always on of touring, getting ready for a tour, booking the tour, coming back. This has been quite an interesting time to stop and focus on the art. Yeah. I've been doing some writing and I've also been reaching out to other artists who I admire, trying to do some co-writing, which is a thing that I've never managed to pull off in the past. So I have this project of collaborations and so much of this stuff can be done long distance now that mm -hmm. I'm forging ahead. I'm more likely to find people at home now. That's true. <laughs> Good point. The first fruit of this project has come out just at the beginning of this month. It's a collaboration with Windborne. 
We did this in the before times. They were on tour in the UK in February, and they came and visited me, and we spent two days arranging this song and drove over to West Yorkshire and recorded it. I'm really proud of what we came up with, and it is unfortunately very timely. Did you write the song alone? Did you write it together with the band? I wrote the words and the tune, and then the five of us worked together to come up with the arrangement. If you just have the words and the tune, it feels like a hymn, and it's very square. I thought that by opening it up and bringing in more voices, we could get something that was richer and more interesting. I wasn't expecting what I heard. I know that Windborne is an a cappella group. Of course, I was expecting that. It's just exquisite. The harmonies are to die for. So I hope you enjoy the little snippet we have. What's the title of the song? It's called Songs Stay Sung. There is an end to everything. The breath we take and the songs we sing. And the last note rings and dies away But the song stays sung till the end of days And all we do may be undone But love stays loved and song stays sung Astronomers could never chart the constellations of the heart. For lovers part and lovers pine, but the love stays loved till the end. It's stunning and very timely indeed. I like asking this question to everybody. Can you tell us something really, something funny that people don't know about you? Ooh, okay. That might surprise them. I actually fold my underwear these days. Right. (laughs) What? All my clothes are in one drawer, and if I don't fold them, they don't fit. (laughs) No, I think it's perfect, uh, because people have asked you, I'm sure, if you do indeed fold your underwear, and your answer is? Yes. Yay! So, Zoe Mulford, where can people find you on the interweb? www.zoemulford.com. It's really easy. On Facebook, I'm Zoe Mulford, transatlantic (laughs) singer-songwriter. I'm a little bit less transatlantic right now, but I'm still there. I am on Bandcamp. I'm gradually uploading my back catalog to Bandcamp. If you go to Bandcamp now, you will find that new track, and you'll find... Small Brown Birds, which is the album with the president saying Amazing Grace on it. Hopefully in the coming weeks, months, there will be more of my music going up there. Fantastic. Thanks for letting us know where to find you. Zoe, this has just been a real treat for me. I appreciate you sitting down and chatting with us and telling us some stories about what's going on in your world and your songs and how they came about. I really look forward to hearing all the music that comes in the future. Well, Cheryl... I always enjoy talking with you, and thank you so much for having me on the show. You bet. Thanks, Zoe. You've been listening to Folk Pod, and our guest this week was Zoe Mulford. We should have had you say something in Chinese. I have one phrase that I keep polished up. Say it in Chinese first. 
I'm afraid to ask what that means. Should I? Can I? I studied Chinese for two years and I've forgotten it all. <laughs> Folkbot is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host and producer, and Shauna Boniface, our creator, producer, editor, head cook, and bottle washer. Catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Folk Pod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.